1: Hi, I'm Kirsty Major, Commissioning Editor here at The Independent, and this is Double Take, a podcast in which our writers come into the studio to read and discuss one of their opinion pieces. It could be their weekly column or something from the archives that shines some light on this week's news. Today we're joined by our Westminster correspondent fresh from conference season, Andy Grice, and Jonathan Isby, Editor at Brexit Central, to talk about the commencement of formal Brexit negotiations between the UK and the EU. To start us off, we'll revisit Andy's take on May's last big speech on Brexit in Florence. Thanks to Boris Johnson, Theresa May's Florence speech highlighted all of her weaknesses instead of her strengths.
2: This is a battle between time and money, was how one cabinet minister described the Brexit negotiations this week. To prevent time running out on exit negotiations that are going nowhere and Britain leaving the EU without a deal, Theresa May has finally put some money on the table. Although she did not include a figure in her speech in Florence this afternoon, her promise to honour the UK's budget commitments to the EU should head off the real possibility of the talks breaking down. While she used only one coded sentence in order to soften the impact on the domestic front, it was the language the EU wanted to hear. It should be worth more than the reported 20 billion euros, which is only an opening offer. The UK will probably have to stump up at least twice as much to secure a deal. Ministers want to keep some money up their sleeves for when the negotiations reach a climax in a year's time. Money is their strongest card, while the lack of time is on the EU's side. Apart from the divorce payment, May's conciliatory tone towards the EU was not matched by much substance. She moved a little on the rights of EU citizens in the UK and dropped her previous threat to play the security card by ending co with our neighbours. Florence also marked a welcome retreat from May's previous no deal is better than a bad deal mantra as she acknowledged that the UK needs a two-year transitional agreement. This is a setback for hardline Brexiteers who had urged May to repeat the threat to walk away without agreement in her speech. Although she paid lip service to it when taking questions from journalists, May knows the threat is an empty one. Parliament would probably send her back to the negotiating table. It's increasingly clear the UK has not made enough preparations on issues such as customs, borders and immigration to fully leave in March 2019 and urgently needs to provide certainty and stability for business. But May also showed her stubborn streak by making five references to her Lancaster House speech in January. This Prime Minister does not do U-turns. Her political epitaph will be, nothing has changed. She'll be saying it even on the day after she leaves Downing Street. The speech highlighted May's weakness is not her strength, thanks to Boris Johnson. He has garnered more headlines than her, which, despite his protestations, is precisely what he craved. His allies talked up the idea that he could resign, which he then blamed on an overexcited media. The Foreign Secretary was playing a cynical game. His supporters will claim his intervention stopped the Prime Minister endorsing the Chancellor Philip Hammond's vision of a UK remaining close to the EU single market after the transition which May's allies insist she was never going to do anyway. By reviving his bogus claim that Brexit could eventually bring a £350 million a week bonus for the NHS to try to protect his own reputation, Johnson made May's nightmarish task of appealing to both an EU and domestic audience even harder. Some people are still fighting the referendum campaign. They need to move on, snarled one May ally. It's true that some Leave voters will not understand why we're not leaving immediately, and are paying more money in, when Boris & Co promised we would get our money back. In fact, as Hammond argues, there are good reasons to pay up, to prevent an act of economic self-harm that would most hurt those on low incomes. May is paying the price for not preparing the ground on the divorce payment and the inevitable messy compromises that lie ahead. Her speech was a missed opportunity to do that. The cabinet may have signed up to a transitional deal but its public display of unity is fake. There are still two competing visions for the UK after 2021. Hammond's one for close links with our biggest market and the Brexiteers one which wants to break free from EU regulations and not pay for single market access. The cabinet's new fault line. Stand by for more headlines about Johnson threatening to resign over cash for access even though we should now take them with a bucket of salt. May's desire for a bespoke agreement, not a Swiss-style arrangement favoured by Hammond or the Canada-EU trade deal route backed by Johnson, was deliberately opaque. Fifteen months after the referendum, she has not made her mind up on precisely what she wants and there was no sign of consensus during the Cabinet's long-overdue two-hour debate the same week as her speech. The real battle was merely postponed. While the Florence speech buys May some time, she cannot afford to waste any more the Prime Minister must decide her favoured final destination and try to bridge the divide between the Chancellor and Foreign Secretary. Not least because the EU needs to know if progress is to be made on a deal before time really does run out.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? Thank you for reading your piece, Andy. So in it, you said that Theresa May needs to quickly act to heal the divide between Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson and the Chancellor, Philip Hammond. It's been a month since you wrote your piece and that definitely hasn't happened. So where are we at with the Tory party and the rifts developing over Brexit?
2: Well, it's definitely got worse since that piece was written and I'm afraid that Florence did not really have the desired effect of helping to get the EU talks going again. There's no sign of a breakthrough in the EU discussions that are going on. And if anything the war inside the Tory party um, headed by Boris Johnson and Philip Hammond has has intensified since we saw at the Tory conference that um, there's no respite at all in that war and we've now got allies of Boris Johnson and hard Brexiteers saying that Philip Hammond should be sacked by Theresa May if she does a cabinet reshuffle shortly and conversely uh, the pro-Europeans saying that Boris Johnson should be sacked so if anything we've gone from bad to
3: worse.
1: And Jonathan, so where on the Brexit divide do you sit?
3: Well, I believe in Brexit. I think there are, there are a lot of people, and Andy just used the term hard Brexit, others people talk about soft Brexit. I generally dispute putting any adjective in front of Brexit because I think Brexit is a defined thing, as demonstrated by the referendum result last year, that people, when they voted for Brexit, were voting for coming out of the single market, coming out of the customs union, taking back control of our borders, our laws, our money, and our ability to form our own trade policy. And, and those are non-negotiable fundamentals of what Brexit actually is. And you know, there's obviously discussion about um, you know, the exact uh, transition period, implementation phase, whatever you want to call it, and you know what happens during that period. And clearly that there is going to be, a, if there is a phase of, of that kind, there is going to be a sense of limbo for, for a year or two in between. But you know, at the end of it, you know, Brexit will have happened, and we will be out of those those bodies, which for, for decades have been shackling the UK and stopping the UK from being able to make our own decisions on a whole number of different fronts.
1: And do you feel like it's going to happen? So we're at a point where we've reached a little bit of an impasse. We have the divorce bill, which Theresa May should be talking about today, which is Monday. Do you think we'll get there? Do you think we'll get there with rights for EU citizens, the Irish border, how much money we have to cough up?
3: We certainly should do. I mean, we are leaving the European Union. That is non-negotiable. Article 50 was triggered at the beginning of this year. Ergo, on March the 29th, March the 30th, 2019, that is the moment at which we leave the European Union. That is irrevocable. That is happening. And what the government is doing now... Uh, in terms of the legislation that's going to go through Parliament over the next year and a bit, uh, is about ensuring that that the day that we do leave the European Union in March 2019, that there is a working statute book and that you know ev- everything is in order. Uh, and obviously there are these discussions to be had about all kinds of arrangements with the European Union. Uh, you say the talks are an impasse. Well, I mean, I guess I, I always thought at this juncture... That there'd been there would be a lot of sizing up in the early days of the negotiations, and no one was going to uh, suddenly roll over and, and agree to all sorts of big demands in in the very early days. I think there's been a lot of grandstanding, certainly on the part of the European Union, in all of this. But I think we are now reaching a point where you know the European Union ought to be willing to move the talks on to the next stage involving future training arrangements, not least because. As, as the EU often say themselves, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And certainly some of the issues regarding you know, the Irish border in particular, you know, the, the, the way that we trade with the European Union after Brexit very much impacts on, on the, that, that kind of arrangement.
1: You say grandstanding from the EU side, but I wonder if you could both speak a little bit about the grandstanding that's happening within the Tory party because if I was the EU I'd be licking my lips at this divided Tory party I mean they don't know what they even stand for what are they going to come to the negotiating table with um and I I worry and I wonder so I wonder if you can comment on this about whether people inside the conservative party are putting Brexit first i.e what solutions work for Brexit for the British economy or are they putting what solutions work for their careers like what's taking priority do you think in their decisions right now
2: well, I think it's a mixture of both. I think if you look at Boris Johnson, I think he took a career decision to back Brexit in the first place. We know that he wrote two newspaper articles, one backing Remain and one backing Leave, and he pressed the button on the Leave one. And um, I'm not saying that's the only reason. I believe I believe he, he believes in Brexit now, but uh, I don't think you can disentangle the career mm. prospects. Uh, and um, everybody in the cabinet now will be weighing up their, their own career prospects as well as the, the options for Brexit. They don't know if Theresa May is going to be strong enough to complete the Brexit negotiations through to 2019 she may have to stand down um, before then And so um, in terms of how it affects the talks, you're right. People in France and Germany and Brussels, they read the English papers, newspapers, as closely as you and I do. And they know everything about Boris. And um, I think Boris actually has made the talks more difficult. There was a prospect that this week the EU would pave the way to have at least informal soundings on the trade deal, moving to phase two, as Jonathan referred to. But I think all the headlines about Boris um, made them think in Berlin and Paris, not to do that. And so I think Boris has had a direct impact, uh, an adverse one, on the negotiations.
1: Do you agree, Jonathan?
3: I think Andy's a bit unfair on Boris in terms of the the original de- declaration for Brexit. If you look at what Boris has written over the last decade or two, he has been consistently deeply sceptical about the European Union. But you can't deny the fact
1: he wrote two columns. Well, no, columns. The, well, no he, it,
3: it was a, it was a, it was a test to basically see if he could argue convincingly why we should remain. And if you read that piece, and in fact there's a transcription of it in Tim Shipman's excellent book All Out War, all about the. Uh, the brexit referendum it's not a very convincing case and he knew that himself after he, he read it that you know he you know there, there were personal loyalties involved and his friendship with david cameron and others that took take into account and anyway he he declared for brexit i think he believes in brexit and i think one of the reasons that you've seen some of the interventions from him over the last few weeks is because he does feel so invested in this process as the person who was the most high profile public face of the vote leave campaign last year you know, he invested huge amounts in making this happen and wants to ensure that it happens and happens in the way that it ought to.
1: When you say the way it ought to, though, his vision is to dr- crash out, right? He said that if we don't have a, a deal on our terms, and, we, and and this transition deal shouldn't go on forever and we should just cut all ties crashing out isn't the best version of brexit right well,
3: no one wants to crash out and no one is proposing crashing out i think there was concern from some people that you know the philip hammond view of a transition period going on for 3 4 potentially 5 years was being put around the treasury and that this needed to be nipped in the bud uh, and in that sense you know boris johnson's interventions kind of uh, in a sense, almost kind of bolstered the the government's position uh, in terms of arguing for a short, clean transition period that didn't go on forever. Uh, And I think, you know, as as Foreign Secretary, he he hasn't made many interventions on Brexit over the last year because there's a hell of a lot going on in the world that that he's concerned with too. But he he obviously felt strongly enough to... To make those interventions uh, before the, the party conference, and I think from the conversations I had with Conservative MPs during the Conservative conference last week up in Manchester, I think the the vision that he has enjoys massive support. Whereas I think the the number of people who would back the the, the supposed Philip Hammond vision, which isn't, it's still not a million miles away from the official government line. Frankly, I think that some of these divisions are slightly overblown uh, by by us in the media, but you know the 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 Philip Hammond vision of a longer transition period and potentially EA light solution you no know, does not find very much support amongst the conservative parliamentary party do you agree I think that there are certainly lots of Tory MPs who who
2: do share Boris's vision that's true but I think what's interesting based on my own discussions in, in Manchester at the Tory conference I think the center of gravity in the cabinet is now shifting towards the Philip Hammond position because I think that cabinet ministers, possibly including Theresa May herself, are really worried that we could commit huge economic self-harm by leaving too quickly. The Treasury has challenged the supporters of a clean break, the people who want to rely on trade deals with non-EU countries to show how the benefits of that would kick in, and they can't do that because we don't know how long trade deals with other countries would take to negotiate. We know that the EU-Canada deal took seven years, for example. Mm. So I think that Philip Hammond is actually winning, uh, making progress in those internal arguments within the cabinet. That's why Boris Johnson threw his toys out of the pram, because he could see the direction of travel in the cabinet, and he has to some extent put the brakes on, that is true. But I think that they'll come back to the same arguments when they sit down uh, over the next few weeks to, to work out what the long-term EU-UK relationship should be like. And in my in my own view, Philip Hammond is right. We do need to hug the EU close, at least until we know we can diverge. That means mirroring EU regulations. That means possibly paying in some money to the EU for access to the single market, which the people
3: like Boris Johnson don't want to do. I don't think there'll be any, any support within the Conservative Party for paying to access the single market. I mean, in the sense that, you no, know, there are 106 your countries around the world that sell things into Europe in the single market but aren't paying access for that. Um, and in terms of regulations you know, obviously any goods that are sold by UK companies into the European market will obviously have to abide by European regulations in the same way that if we want to sell something into the American market, we need to abide by American regulations and so on and so forth. But, you know, at the same time, there is actually no justification for saying that every single UK company should have to abide by EU regulations on its goods uh, if they are not exporting to the European Union. I think that would be utterly unacceptable, not least when you bear in mind that I think actually... 95, 97% of companies in the UK don't actually export to the European Union.
1: But 40% of our exports do go to the EU, right? So, I yes. mean, a good chunk of our businesses. Yeah, which is will obviously have a, to. a
3: smaller proportion than it was before, and, it, and it's an ever decreasing proportion uh, because, lest we forget, the European Union as uh, a market in, you know, I think it's the, the continent with the with the kind of smallest growth of any, bar Antarctica. Um, yeah, obviously, any anything we are exporting out there, we will need to abide by their regulations, as as you would buy, as I say, if you're exporting to to another country, to abide by their regulations. But you know, that is not a reason for us necessarily to force every United Kingdom company uh, that's only selling internally within the UK, for example, to to abide by regulations set elsewhere.
1: And what is it? What else is it about the Hammond plan that really gets to the people who prefer the Boris Johnson? version of Brexit.
3: Because I think the biggest concern was when over this length of implementation phase, transition period, whatever you want to call it, because uh, if you have a two-year transition period after March 2019, that takes you through until March 2021. And I think there's a view that there absolutely needs to be uh, uh, you know, at least a year between the ending of that transition period and the next general election so that you know, the country can see the thing functioning and operating b- before we have another election. So um, this comes
1: back again to the idea of party politics and electability. Surely, if it, we if we were talking about Brexit for Britain, we'd be talking about a time frame that worked for the UK. So say a longer transition period to let business adjust. But what I'm hearing is we want a Brexit that finishes just before the election starts, so that we can we can show off and that's no, not that's what's best for Britain that's don't what's don't best for the Conservative
3: party right no i don't think it's showing off i think it's just not having no, having a clean break i think a, t- a two year period is absolutely sufficient to ensure that that happens and and dare i say it there is you no know, the the uncertainty you know if you if you're talking about electoral politics there's the uncertainty as to the position that would be promoted by uh, the labor party who are in a frankly an absolute damn mess over what to think about the European Union. You, you know, you're you talking this morning about, you know, there's divisions of the Conservative Party. Well, they are nothing compared to the, the Labour Party. And I, I was in Brighton as I'm sure Andy was uh, for the Labour Party conference a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, you, you get a different position morning, noon and night and, you know, different wings of the party and so on. And, you know, were, you know, I, frankly, it would be easier for, for the country if if the Labour Party were four square behind the efforts that the government are making to, to secure the right deal and, and so on and so forth. But frankly, they're not. You know, you saw 18 Labour MEPs last week voting against moving to trade talks, which I think is utterly against the interests of the country. I mean, it's a non-binding vote in the European Parliament, but nonetheless, it's sending a message uh, that they don't want to move on to trade talks. So I think it's a, a very, dare I say, un- unpatriotic thing for them to have done. Uh, and the Labour Minister Labour shadow ministers, who were on television over the weekend, were saying that you know nothing is off the table; every option is there, which is creating massive uncertainty. And uh, you know, actually, if you're you know, if you're in business, that's that's the last thing you want. You want you want to know where you stand, and you know you don't want the idea of uh, you know that the whole thing being opened up again uh, if you had a transition period that was going through an electoral phase.
1: Andy, do you think the Labour Party should be there to patriotically? Patriotically support the Conservatives.
2: No, well, oppositions are there to oppose, and, uh, and and frankly, the government's position matters a lot more to the country than the party of opposition. It's a bit of a distraction to talk about the Labour Party, frankly. Yes, it's true they have sent conflicting signals over the last uh, few months, but I think they've now arrived at a sensible policy, which is to stay in the single market and a customs union during the transitional period. And it's possible that Labour would want that to become permanent, uh, which would not be respecting the referendum result, result, would it? Well, that's a matter of opinion. I mean, I do think there there is a, a future for as sticking close to the EU. There are some people who believe uh, in all parties that the the transitional arrangement could last for much longer and to me that would still be we would still be leaving the EU we would not be part of the EU institutions uh, it, arguably it's not a good place to be because we wouldn't have any influence over the regulations that we still have to abide by but I do think given the close trading links that we can't get away from all roads lead back to that it would be the position that safeguarded our economy at least for a longer period than two years and that may it could be that parliament decides in a year's time that's what uh, the place we should should be. And public opinion could move during the next year. At the moment, there's no appetite for revisiting Brexit or going for the sort of permanent transitional deal that I'm talking about, if that's not a contradiction in terms, hugging the EU close, staying close to the single market and the customs union. But I think public opinion could well change over the next year. The crucial point is about a year from now, when Parliament will have to have a vote on whatever deal Theresa May gets if she does get a deal.
1: And, Personally, I think Labour's actually quite smart about the way they're dealing with Brexit because I think, if you look at the Brexit vote, it was never about the EU. It was always about a backlash because of the material conditions in the UK. So Labour focusing on unemployment, benefit, housing, is actually addressing the underlying issues of Brexit. So if you address those first and then come back to the EU, I think that, for me, I think that's maybe a a more sensible approach. To Brexit, which was never, never really about European institutions. Do you, I mean, would you agree? Or
3: I mean, I think there's probably a whole week of podcasts <laughs> about <laughs> why people voted the way they did and what motivations people had for doing it. And you no, know, for sure, there was a, a sense of backlash against. The political elite both in Brussels and in Westminster uh, but in that sense that was just as much aimed at the Labour Party leadership as it was at the Conservative Party leadership you know a lot of people felt that they had been you know disregarded for for years if not decades by successive governments and you know there, there was a certain sense of wake-up call in in voting for brexit and you know in, in doing so, taking back control for the UK from the European Union over a whole load of different laws, which in turn puts more power back in the hands of British politicians at Westminster, who in turn know that the electorate are far more tuned in to what's going on now and far more responsive and reactive to what's going on, which um, will, will hopefully, uh, you know, will it by definition, makes them, makes them more likely to be held to account by those electorates.
1: And then moving away from British politics, so... May is going to give her speech today, in which she's going to say that the ball is now in the EU's court. So what do you think, we're going to finish on this, what do you think the next steps are for the EU?
3: Well, the EU is going to, well, the European Council, which is all the national leaders, will decide at their summit on the 19th and 20th of October whether or not to move to trade talks, uh, in terms of the post-Brexit relationship and you know, all the signals we're getting are is that they don't want to do that, which you know I think is a, a great shame and doesn't show willing on their part to engage positively. I think Theresa May's Florence speech was extremely positive and you know, Andy talks about you know hugging the EU tight. I mean, Theresa May has been quite clear there are a whole load of areas in which she utterly wants to continue having a very close and productive partnership with our friends across the channel. And indeed, we, whatever happens, we will continue buying and selling goods from each other. You know, that is going to happen. Um, the EU may decide to be buddy-minded and not move to the trade talks, in which case I think uh, the the UK government, uh, as as was signalled at uh, the Conservative conference last week by both Theresa May and David Davis, that you know, there will need to be very clear plans in place for a no-deal scenario. Because despite what Andy said in his piece that he wrote and, and read out earlier, you no, know, she did the very first question after the speech in Florence. You know, Do you still agree that no deal is better than a bad deal? Answer, yes. And she absolutely has to continue to take that position in order to be able to secure the best possible deal because you know, that is, in effect, a trump card of saying, well, if, if you don't want to play ball, then we will go to a no-deal scenario. And, by the way, we are preparing for that and are confident that we can uh pursue that and and that's what they what's the, what they need to do as a, as a backstop position I'm, I'm hoping that we don't need to do that i think it would you know clearly be more hostile than than agreeing a deal in a, in a positive and, and friendly way but i say it does need to be there as, a, as an option to help secure as, as good a deal as possible
2: i think that when theresa may says the ball is in the eu's core that's not how they will see it in the eu Uh, We often look at this through the London end of the telescope, uh, inevitably, as we're based Mm. in London, and we forget that there are two sides in any negotiation. And if you think about it from the other end of the telescope, it's the UK that's leaving this relationship. We're walking out. So I think the onus is on us and the ball is in our court to come up with a much more detailed vision of what we want at the end of the process. And I don't really blame the EU for negotiating hard. They're going to protect their project. They're going to defend their interests. Yes, both sides need to give ground. I hope they do. I think the longer it drags on, there is, a, there is an increasing risk that we won't get a deal. And that would be very, very damaging for the economy, in my view. The time is running short and the EU will use the clock against us. That's what British ministers say privately, that that time is their enemy. Uh, And it's the friend of the EU side because they've got to reach uh, an agreement about a a year from now in order to have time for the agreement to be ratified by the EU institutions, European Parliament and so on uh, by March 2019. So time is getting short. I suspect that uh, at the summit next week, the EU will not move on to phase two and trade talks with the UK. I suspect that will happen in December, but the EU will be looking for more concessions in the period between the two summits uh, before they press the button and give the go. Go ahead for trade talks in December.
1: It's going to be a really long year, isn't it? <laughs> thank you very much, Andy, and thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you for listening. If you liked Andy's piece, you can find him writing at Independent Voices on a Wednesday and a Friday. You can find Jonathan Izabi at BrexitCentral.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Acast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. A big thank you to Helen Hodnott for producing this episode.